Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hi, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, on this show every week, we champion entrepreneurs, startups, all early stage businesses, and in fact, all SMEs, and we're heard around the world. So small businesses and entrepreneurs, they're the people that will grow the economy. We're going to create the 17 million jobs that are needed in this country and in Europe and everywhere else. It's entrepreneurs that will change the economic future. And so we need to all support entrepreneurs as much as we can. Now, I know that everybody doesn't have money to give entrepreneurs to help them out, but we can all do something to help entrepreneurs. There's, there's entrepreneurs everywhere that are looking for help. Now, it can be great advice from the, you know, learning from the mistakes that you've made or the great achievements that you've made. It can be, um, uh, you might know somebody that um, is senior in a company that could distribute their products. You may know somebody in a company that might do a joint venture with them. There's a million ways you can help entrepreneurs. So I urge you for the good of the country and to make yourself feel good as well, get behind an entrepreneur and help them today. Last week, we talked about the first step in, in building repeat business, which is higher margin business. That enables you to increase profits and cut your marketing costs because loyal, dedicated customers keep coming back and you don't have to attract them all the time. And the key to that is to provide awesome service and well-considered added value. We also discussed the fact that research shows that 80% of sales for very successful companies come as a result of word of mouth or repeat business. Now, we received a great response from listeners last week, and we had almost 100% agreement that when you buy a product, receiving excellent service and great service is not a privilege, it's a right. And so when you add value or give service, it can't just be okay service or okay value. You've got to go the extra mile to develop that word of mouth. And I'm hoping that after last week's show, we got a great surge of customer service and added value in businesses right across America. Now, in the last week, I've done a couple of workshops, and the emails that we receive also back this up, that a great many marketers seem very uncertain about how to address the substantial changes that have been brought about by new media. You know, the, the challenges have been brought about by not only the new communica- communication delivery systems, you know, your Facebook, your, your, your internet, your Googles, etc., but the fragmentation of the market and also these changes have changed the consumer considerably, both in their attitudes and how they access information 
and how they access the messages that they require. So these changes actually make the comments that I made last week on creating great word of mouth so much more critical. As you know, and I've mentioned it before, I love Time Magazine online. It's fantastic. So if you don't get it, you should. There's always great tips for small business. And a couple of weeks ago, they had an excellent article about today's marketers. So I thought it contained some really interesting information. So I've taken some of that and my own thoughts and I thought we'd talk about the challenges that marketers face today. Senior marketers that I talk to, they're struggling to adapt to a world that's fundamentally changed since they began their careers, particularly guys in their 40s and 50s, or girls in their 40s and 50s. The real world has never been a lot like the world, the world of the marketing classroom. I've given plenty of lectures at universities and people come up to me afterwards and say, wow, what happens in the real world is nothing like what we get taught in the classroom. And that's true. Most of the professors have never been out there in the real world battling day to day um, in a war that is business. So the same way that marketers in the real world are struggling on how to effectively use new media because they don't have the training and the marketing classroom is ill-equipped to train the marketers of tomorrow. So... Disruptive technologies and the new expectations and communication patterns of the consumer, they're forcing companies to learn on the run and adjust and innovate as they go. And that's not a very efficient or effective way to do it. Sapient Nitro has done a lot of work in trying to understand how changes today are impacting corporations and their marketing executives. What they found was surprising, and this is a staggering number. Only 15% of senior marketers feel that they are prepared to deal with the rapidly changing consumer and the new digital landscape we're in. And only 8% believe agencies are successfully supporting their brands. Wow. (laughs) You think about that. Put another way, only one senior marketer in 12 believes their agencies know what they're doing in building their brands. It used to be the marketers would, you know, we'd readily agree, we'd say, okay, you know, 50% of advertising and marketing's wasted. We're not sure which half, but 50%'s wasted. A few years ago, a number of agencies, I can think of um, Chai Day, Samuelson Talbot, I know Levi's did a, a, um, a study as well, and they decided that 90 to 95% of marketing and advertising did not work. 95% doesn't work. And what do we do? We kill, still keep doing the same stuff. I mean, you think about it. How many of you would go to a brain surgeon that only got 5% right? You wouldn't, would you? I mean, how many of you use a condom that only works five times out of a 100? I mean, that's ridiculous. Why would you keep doing it? And Chief Marketing Officer Global Marketing Readiness Study, which was a six-month study of CMOs, identified five significant challenges 
that should act as a wake-up call to all of us. The first challenge is the obvious one, the rapid uptake of disruptive technology. The proliferation of new technology from social media, mobile apps, in-store digital experiences, um, mobile payments, it represents a set of obstacles for which senior marketers are totally unprepared. Only 20% of senior market executives consider themselves very knowledgeable about technology. 80% of senior marketing officers are not knowledgeable about technology. Yet Gartner, in a report just a few years ago, said within four years, chief marketing officers will purchase more technology than chief information officers. Wow. So literally millions of marketers who admit to having little knowledge about technology are going to be responsible for making decisions on and buying technology that could dramatically impact their company's future. Well, that's like putting me in charge of the next iPhone. You know, it's ridiculous. We therefore, you know, we've got to develop literally millions of very technology-savvy marketers with the flexibility to adapt to and and embrace disruptive technologies and social-driven media, this new personalised marketing. And we need to do it very quickly. In fact, we need to do it in the next couple of years. Guess what, folks? It just isn't going to happen. Companies large and small in pretty much every industry, need to begin an urgent education program for their marketing executives. There's some great courses around. Um, up at MIT, they got the Principles of Digital Communication. Great course. But that's one tertiary education organisation and one course. The second challenge is how to understand and reach globally and multi-connected consumers. Consumers today through their iPhones and their iPads, and they're, they're connected globally, minute by minute. So we've got a new class of consumers, totally with and really empowered by affordable technology that's permeated every aspect of their lives and totally changed the marketing rules. Sapient Nitro's research also shows that 82% of senior marketers feel that interconnected consumers have broken down the barriers between global, national and local marketing. Now, marketing's core challenge has always been to deliver relevant messages to the local market. But in an age where campaigns designed for one country are rapidly shared around the world and, and adapt marginally for different markets. The challenge is to give all consumers, no matter where they are, a delicate balance of local, regional and global campaigns and do it simultaneously. And a third challenge for today's marketer is the need to also understand the relationship between national and local sensitivities, customs, Attitudes, you know, I've done campaigns with a major international where 
um, the name of a product and the, and the type of message that you would run in the United States is just totally inappropriate from some other markets. So coping with the diversity of global or national consumers that also have you know, strong regional subcultures is regarded as a serious challenge by 75% of senior marketers. So we have a problem. A recent Millwood Brown study showed that of ads that tested exceptionally well in one country, only one in 10 did well in another country. So 90% failed. So this raises a hell of a lot of doubts about the feasibility and cost-effectiveness of cross-border or even cross-regional marketing campaigns. And that, and for for companies where there are local, national, and global marketing roles, there's serious tension between these three roles, and levels of authority break down, and that's a challenge for most marketers. So in addition to the marketers needing considerable education in digital technology and how to maximise the marketing performance of all of the new channels, there's also a clear need for organisational design and digital platforms that allow for a multi-channel, multidisciplinary mindset that is uniform across the organisation. And that doesn't seem to be happening because you know, then you go into pitching for budgets. And if you've got national, um, state, local marketers all pitching for a budget to all implement their own campaigns, we don't get fully integrated campaigns, which is what's needed with this new media. And a huge 30 percent of senior marketers don't believe that their marketing activities are fully integrated across the digital and traditional channels. Well, it's not surprising. So the opportunity to grow revenues from multi-channel consumers requires investment in digital experience that is far too large for most single markets or smaller companies. It's difficult to do that and provide a great deal of flexibility for localization. So the bottom line is that senior marketers in national or multinational companies need to adopt a global mindset that will let them get rid of the organizational silos, their specialized partners, and their reliance on traditional single-channel campaigns so that they can realize the benefit of fully integrated and cross-channel experiences. Now, the fifth challenge for marketers is that the, you know, too frequently, the three executive branches of CMO, CEO, and CTO, they overlap so much in the area of digital experience and personal response and purchasing responsibilities. And this leads to a failure to organize efficiently or effectively for the new marketing environment in which we're all stuck. Most middle to large Size companies have both traditional and digital marketing marketing teams, and very seldom 
that the two of them integrate. Now, Sapient Nitro's research shows that 56% of marketers agree that coordination between digital and traditional marketing teams is much more difficult than it was five years ago, with both teams vying to get their own campaigns recognised and vying for budget allocations. And just by doing that, it creates silos and a lack of coordination. And this is happening at a time when collaboration and integration is becoming more and more critical. So what we need today is a new breed of marketer with a mindset that builds campaigns across silos and approaches the skills traditionally associated with a CTO and a CEO. And a decade ago, the commerce or digital function would have, they would have reported to the chief informational officer. But today, about 50% report to the chief marketing officer. So what we have in most marketing departments is dysfunction, which is only getting worse. So we need more digital education, more coordination, and fully integrated traditional and digital marketing strategies. Of course, it's not only the marketing department that needs to keep up with technology. Utilising and keeping up with changes in technology is critical in every aspect of the business. It's no longer an option. Today, it's an absolute necessity. Technology has brought numerous advantages to every business, no matter what size it is. Speeds up your work, um, gives you tasks, controls, it offers promotional opportunities, it accelerates communication, enables you to research your products, keep up with your competition, just to mention a few of them. So to stay competitive, people at all, all levels of business need to perfect their computer skills and their technology skills so they can keep up with the ever-changing technology resources that are available. Keeping up with technology is very time-consuming, and most business owners have very little time to work on their business. Careful planning is essential so that you can figure out what technology will best serve your Sure, consult with everybody in your staff to get the best sense of what tools are necessary at each level of your business. A significant amount of information on technology and training, it's available everywhere. So go onto the internet and just ask what's the best technology for your business. You know, even a simple Google search, keeping up with technology, will produce enough, re- enough results to get you on your way and puts you in a much better place. Remember, having a great product is only 10 to 15% of the battle. Having investment funds is only 15% of the battle. The other 70% of the battle is your strategy, your ability to keep up with the times, your ability to use the right technology, and your ability to run the business and manage people. Now, I'm Bob Pritchard, and I'll talk with my first, Asper Berry, 
who I've reached in London and is an expert consultant to business on the subject of risk-taking and decision-making. I will talk to Casper immediately after this short break. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show, where we give you an insight into the lives of some of the world's extraordinary people and what makes them tick. Most extraordinary people that I've ever met began life in average, ordinary circumstances, just like most of us. What makes them interesting, unusual and great, is something that we try to find out in this segment. My guest today is Casper Berry, who I've reached in London early morning. Casper began his career as a lead actor in a popular BBC television series, went on to read economics and anthropology at Cambridge, and then had his first screenplay play, do that again first screenplay produced while he was in his final year by the time he was 23 note 23 he was writing for Miramax and Columbia TriStar well that's a hell of a variation of in careers and he was great at all of them now if that isn't exciting enough wait there's more at 25 he moved to Las Vegas and became a professional poker player. He did really well for three years before establishing 21st Century Media, a huge success that he eventually sold to Bob Geldof's company. He is now a hugely successful speaker and trainer. Phew, I'm tired just thinking about this amazing career. Hi, Casper. Welcome to the show. Hi, Bob. Thank you very much indeed for having me. That's amazing. That really is extraordinary. I've never spoken to anybody, I think, who's had such a diversified career at such a young age. Well, it's interesting, Bob. You talked about um, people starting off normal and then, and then you know, doing extraordinary things. I think in some ways I've sort of started off doing bizarre things in my life and I've had to normalise it almost to stay sane because if I'd stayed at that rate, I think I'd have burnt out very quickly. Yeah, well, maybe. Or maybe you just keep going on to bigger and better things. So, you used to be a professional poker player. What inspired you to make such a dramatic change in your life, and how have you related that to what you do now and to business in general? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, why did I why did I decide to do it? Because it was a kind of crazy uh, decision, and I think a lot of people I think a lot of people think in my sessions that I'm advocating that we all become professional poker players, which I'm absolutely not. You know, at that point in my life. Um, I didn't have a girlfriend, I didn't have family and kids, and so it was very easy for me to do whatever took my fancy. Um, I, I started off, as you, as you recounted in the film industry, but here's the key. 
I wasn't happy. I wasn't getting up every single day, jumping out of bed and going, I love what I have to do today. And I kind of thought, well, there's no point working in this industry if that's not the case. You know, it's a lot of people give their right arm to be doing what I'm doing. So maybe they should be doing it instead of me. But I didn't really know what I did want to do because that had been my dream since I was about 15 years old. Um, and so I thought, like, I just want to do something crazy now um, and, uh, and get some life experience. And, uh, and poker was that thing. I'm you know, endlessly grateful to it, uh, to, to poker, to the world of poker for giving me what I have now. I never thought that I'd still be talking about poker now, you know, 12, 13 years later. Um, but I'm very grateful to be doing it now. How have I related it to business? Well, ironically, I've just talked there about making a decision, a, a massive decision about my life. And actually, that's what poker is. You don't need to have a forehand like Pete Sampras. You don't need to have a swing like Tiger Woods. You just need to be able to make consistently good decisions. And if you sit playing poker for 10 hours a day, as I did eventually for about three years, mostly uh, in Las Vegas, you you become quite obsessed, or I did, certainly, by the process of decision-making. You know, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I doing something very different to what the guy over the other side of the table would do in my situation? Why is he doing things which I might think are crazy or sometimes brilliant? What is this thing called decision-making? Um, what, what are the mechanisms behind it? And I just, you know, became very interested in that process and, and, and basically discovered that there was a whole science of it. There was a body of knowledge about it, which has become quite popularized in the years since, you know, starting off with Malcolm Gladwell's Blink and yeah. more recently, you know, Daniel Kahneman has become a sort of popular author. But at that point, certainly, the world of behavioral economics, in fact, still hadn't been awarded the Nobel Prize at that point, and, and the world of decision-making was a very hidden world. And I guess I'm part of a very big wave of people who are trying to popularise it and make it accessible. Well, let me ask you a question. How long you went to Vegas because you didn't have a girlfriend? How long were you in Vegas before you found a girlfriend? <laughs> <laughs> Well, not, not very long, actually. Um, and one of the things is people often say to me, why did you quit playing poker? And there are three reasons I'm, I'm always very honest about this. Number one, because I didn't feel I was ever going to be world champion. Um, uh, I didn't feel I was ever going to make, you know, several million dollars playing poker. Some people do, not as many as people think, actually. Some people do. And they have a natural flair for it. I worked really hard for every dollar I made in poker. The second reason was because I became bored of it. Um, most people at the events that I run love their first time playing poker, and that's fantastic. But if you imagine doing exactly the same thing every single night, six days a week for three years, it becomes boring. And the third reason is I split up with that girlfriend, and I thought, <laughs> now's a pretty good time to leave town. <laughs> <laughs> now, when people think about poker, they think about luck and gambling. And, uh, you know, I've been in business hell a long time, and I don't think luck is about either, I don't think business is about either luck or, gla- or gambling. So, how relevant are they to more sober world of business? Well, here's the thing. When we're playing poker, what we're doing is uh, poker hands are a series of opportunities, right? And and in a way, that's a metaphor for the opportunities that we have in life every single day. So the opportunity to hire a new person, the opportunity to redo your website, the opportunity to take a meeting at 11 o'clock. These are literally all opportunities. Mm -hmm. And what I try and get people to do is to see literally all decisions that we make, all decisions, as investment decisions. Okay. And we tend to think about that word investment as being the allocation of the scarce resource that is money. Sure. But money is just one of many scarce resources that we have figuratively and literally at any given moment. Yep. Money is the obvious one. The next obvious one is, of course, time. Yep. Um, and we measure time sometimes in hours, minutes, and seconds, but sometimes in terms of um, uh, energy or attention or passion or dedication to something. Our degree of comfort, our liberty is a scarce resource that can be taken away from us. Sure. And the big scarce resource that I try and get people in organizations talking about, uh, which we don't measure, literally, in pounds, shillings, and pence, 
is status, reputation, standing, respect, what Asian cultures call face. And if you've ever worked in Asia, you'll know that they literally talk about the loss of face. Sure. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just as much of a, a concept in Western cultures, we just don't mention it that much, is the fear of, you know, losing what we have, the fear of being seen as being less in other people's eyes, the fear of being seen as less in our own eyes, you know, lowering our own sense of self-esteem. Mm. The fear of that very often is what stops us from making decisions. So all, of, all decisions are investment decisions, and poker is a very literal arena in which we are constantly investing. The only scarce resource that means much in poker is, of course, money as measured by poker chips. But when you get to grips with poker, what you learn is that the massive investment that you learn on, you know, page 12 of any decent poker book is exactly the same massive investment that Warren Buffett will teach you, that any good investment course will teach you. And in actual fact, that, that the science of decision making reveals that we are, uh, if you like, implementing all the time this, this concept of investment. Yeah. You talk about um, a break-even line. Yes. What is it and why is it important? Okay, so the break-even line is sort of my own creation. It's, a, it's actually a graphical representation, which doesn't help us much here in this interview, but it's for people who don't like the maths of what I teach. And I completely appreciate some people hate maths. I always go through the maths when I do my uh, sort of, uh, you know, full seminars and speeches because investment and risk ultimately do come down to a set of actually really simple, really accessible uh, equations, but which I appreciate that most people don't like. But I can summarize it here. Imagine we were doing a coin toss. Now, obviously, life is not like a coin toss, but it has certain characteristics in common with a coin toss. That is, you can choose whether to bet or invest in this opportunity as represented by a coin toss. And it may win, it may come up successful, or it may lose, it may be unsuccessful. And in life, of course, you get to exercise a whole series of skills to try and make sure you're as successful as possible. Yeah. But you'll know if you've ever worked in business that you're not going to win every single sale that you pitch for, no matter how good you are. Not every single meeting that you go to is going to be a success, and not every single person that you hire is going to become employee of the month. Jack Absolutely. Welsh, you know, probably one of the best hirers in the world, said if he got it right 80% of the time, he was doing well. So what the coin toss represents is an opportunity that is not always going to be successful. And in poker, more complicatedly, a little bit more like life, that's represented by the terms of cards and other people's behaviors and all these things over which we have no control. And in fact, I use Stephen Covey's brilliant model of, you know, circle of influence and circle of concern, sure. uh, circle of concern. Yep. to represent that which we can control and that which we can't control. Yes. Okay, now if we think about this coin toss, if you were going to invest a dollar, Bob, in every single toss of the coin, that is every single meeting you have or every single person you employ, yep. if I were to give you 50 cents back every time you're successful, mm -hmm. that would mean 50% of the time you lost a dollar and 50% of the time you made 50 cents. Yes. So you don't need to be a mathematical genius to know that at that point you're losing. <laughs> yep. If I offer you a dollar for every time you're successful, now 50% of the time you're losing a dollar and 50% of the time you're making a dollar. Of course, in the short term, you may make $10 or you may lose $10. You don't know exactly what's going to happen. That's the short term. That's where the luck will have some kind of effect. And every salesperson who's ever worked for any period of time will know that he has good weeks and he has bad weeks. And sometimes it's hard to put your finger on exactly what's happening there. Sometimes it's due to what we're doing, but sometimes it's just due to this thing that we can't control. We just have good weeks and bad weeks. What about a coin tosses? Um 50-50, isn't it? But yes. when, you, when you go to meetings or whether you're doing whatever, then your, the amount of skill you have and how much learning that you've put into your trade then certainly turns the odds in your favour, surely. That's right. That's right. You definitely want to give yourself the best possible chance of success. So if you're a great salesperson, you might have like an 80-90% chance in this 
situation because you can turn situations around and if you're lousy or less experienced then you might just have a 30% chance. And of course, in the reality of the world, it's either going to convert or it's not going to convert. But if you take this long-term perspective of all the last 100 meetings I've looked, I've been into, I've converted 80% compared to someone who's only converted 60%. And the longer period of time we have, the more those figures take on some sort of sense of uh, meaning, if you like, or what statisticians call statistical significance. Sure. So coming back to that coin toss, it's just a metaphor, it's just a, um, an example, a way of understanding the, world, the way of the world that we can't control everything. If you had that 50% chance of success and I gave you a dollar for every dollar you invested, you'd be breaking even, and this takes us to our break-even line. Here's the key part about the break-even line. It's a graphical representation of the fact that if now, every time I toss the coin, Bob, you're investing a dollar, Right, which represents the four hours it takes to prepare for the meeting and the hour and the meeting yep. itself and the opportunity cost of all that time. Sure. If when you're successful, I give you $10, now 50% of the time you're losing a dollar, Bob, yep. but 50% of the time you're making $10. And if I represented that on this visual graph called the break-even line, you're now way above it. Okay, you're making so much money, you don't know what to do with it all. That's what a poker player is doing in an ideal world. He's got this huge, what we call positive expectation, even though he's not going to win every time, even though you're not going to convert every sale, even though not every employee you take on is going to be the best. But now you are earning money, even though you are losing, you are failing 50% of the time. And a lot of the time, some will be around to call that a failure. And so that's how I try and reframe the concept of failure. Some failures are obviously bad. Some people are obviously investing their time and their money into opportunities in which they shouldn't be. But the notion of failing in order to get to where we want to get to is not just acceptable. It's actually absolutely necessary. The more you fail, the closer you get to succeed. Absolutely. And in fact, more fundamentally, what I try and show through through the different models is you know, you can use basic microeconomics to show that if a company or an individual is doing lots of things right and making, you know, fantastic returns on their investments or profits or whatever kind of metric they use, what happens is, most of the time, lots of other people will go, ooh, that looks good, that looks interesting, that was very profitable, and they'll pile into that market. If, the more, if, if what you're doing is really visibly successful, actually people will emulate it, copy it, and pretty soon those returns that you're making, unless they're protected by a patent or whatever, will erode, be eroded. Actually, in order to be making really great returns on your investments, you need to do something which other people, for whatever reason, aren't going to emulate. And one of the best things that stops people from emulating what you do is risk, is some sort of difference or danger or uncertainty. And actually, people who are people who achieve, achieve the greatest success often have done it because they've struck out and discovered a way that other people are kind of scared about emulating. And for that reason, you can reap all the rewards yourself. Okay. Final question. Mm. Which gives you the most satisfaction? Not talking about money or security, but true satisfaction. Being an actor, an academic, a screenwriter, a businessman, a poker player, or a speaker trainer? Which one? Oh, I can answer that really honestly. Really honestly. That's being a speaker trainer because being a speaker trainer brings together all those other realms. That's the key, is I get to uh, talk about poker, which I really love. I get in a way, I get to act, I get to perform when I'm talking, and uh, I bring the screenwriting to bear in the sense of constructing sessions, which are structured in a way that people go on a journey and hopefully come out of the other end you know, enlightened and hopefully inspired. Well, it was great to speak with you, Casper. I'm sorry it's so early in the morning. I thought I had an interesting life, but yours is a ripper. I love it. 
Now, if you'd like to find out even more about Casper, go to his website, www.caspercasperry.com. I'll do that again. www.caspercasperry.com. And I'll be back for the last segment of this show after the next short break. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. We are in the midst of a global sovereign debt crisis that could lead to the ultimate risk for the world economy, the removal of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. What will this event really mean to the markets? And more importantly, what does it mean for you and your family? Listen to Global Currency Watch with your host, Stephen Ayer, to get a full and objective look at the world's sovereign debt crisis and help you prepare for when the crisis envelops the United States. Global Currency Watch airs live every Thursday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking radio show. This is where we give you an insight into the lives of some of the world's extraordinary people and what makes them tick. You know, most extraordinary people that I've ever met began life in an average, ordinary sort of a way, like most of us. But what makes them interesting and great? This is the segment where we find out. My guest today in this segment is Kenny J. Anderson, and Kenny recently completed a world tour traveling 55,000 miles in 50 days to 15 countries in six continents, interviewing leaders in sports, business, entertainment, and government. He's written a great book encapsulating what he learned. The book is called Common Denominators for Success, which addresses both personal and corporate excellence. Kenny has also created a business leadership development program that produces measurable results for organizations and individuals, no matter where they are on the planet. As a guy described as having a no-excuses-just-results approach, Kenny's perfectly suited to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show, and I welcome him now. Kenny, welcome to the show. 
Thanks, Bob. Good to be here. What countries did you visit on this world tour? I started off in Santiago, Chile, and uh, then went to Buenos Aires, Argentina, up to Switzerland, uh, Madrid, Spain, Morocco, Netherlands, Belgium, uh, France, England. And then I hopped over to Asia and hit uh, the Philippines, Hong Kong, Seoul, South Korea, and then finished off in Australia. Fantastic. What a great trip. Although you wouldn't have stayed much, <laughs> had a very long stay in any place to really enjoy it, would you? you know, I think my longest time in any one country was five days, and that was in London, England. And yeah. so it was a, a fast and fur- furious trip, but uh, wouldn't trade it for the world. Came back with some unbelievable content. I'm sure. And contacts. So how yeah. did you set up meetings with all these leaders? You know, I had a good friend that had worked back in Europe for a long time and was well-connected in the oil industry, and that was the kickoff. And through that contact, contact, I uh, continued to explore the, the various contacts until I had one key person in each country. From there, that key person set up key interviews with people like ambassadors uh, of, uh, in Argentina to the top CEOs of companies to anchor people uh, like Kim Judah in South Korea and lots, uh, there's some Olympic athletes along the road. And so they, they made possible something that was extraordinary. And that was the opportunity to, to uh, get in front of these key leaders. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I, I speak to um, some incredible people on the show and uh, I'm just amazed by the attitude of some people and the, degree of knowledge and specialty that people have is just extraordinary. Um, so what, what was the main thing that you learned on this trip? Well, I think, you know, as I went into each interview, each interview lasted about 45 minutes. And the, some of the main questions I asked as I went into the interview were, how do you define success? What are the key, most valuable priorities of life? What has made you most successful? And I, I think out of everything that I gained, the most significant was when I asked people what uh, success meant to them, to these leaders, I was expecting what most people in the world might expect, and that was I thought they would, they would measure that success in terms of monetary gain or fame or recognition. Yeah. But to my uh, pleasing surprise, the vast majority of the leaders that I interviewed measured success in terms of what they could contribute to others rather than in what they could gain. And I found that to be a really profound discovery and something that I talk a lot about in my speeches and in my consulting. Do you think, do you think it's real low or do you think it's something that they say because it sounds good? <laughs> you know, that, that's, a great, that's a great question. And, you know, in these interviews, um, I, I wondered after the first couple, I thought, you know, I wonder if this is somewhat put on. But when I, when I interviewed these individuals, I felt a very and, – and not every one of them was necessarily financially uh, successful, although sure. many were. Hmm. But as they, as they got into their, their sense of accomplishment, you could, you could tell a deep sense and rooted purpose for what they did. And I think that that was real evident in their emotions. Oftentimes, uh, you know, some of the interviews, you know, they, they were driven to tears because they kind of went inside themselves – to recognize the influence they've been able to have on people, you could you could definitely discern a very noticeable 
uh, a noticeable meaning behind what they were saying. Did you notice a difference um, between different age groups? As they got older, did they become more um, more wanting to give back, or did you not? Or was it um, pretty even across all age groups? You know, that's that's a great question. Um, I I definitely sensed that maybe people with a little bit more experience and maybe a little bit further along in years <laughs> probably had a. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I sense that maybe a little bit more intro uh, insight in maybe perspective sure. from those that were a little more well seasoned. But even you know, even in a lot of the, uh, the the younger people that I interviewed, I still sensed just a, um, a a great desire to identify their own unique talents and gifts and be able to contribute that in a meaningful way both professionally and personally. So how can this information be useful to the average business owner out there? You know, I, I think in business, sometimes people lead in business with it, it becomes all about the money. And I think sometimes instead of finding that treasure within inside oneself and saying, you know what, yes, I definitely want my business to be profitable. Yes, that is important. But what do I have to offer? What yeah. value do I bring to the table? in the sense of service and or product. And I think when a, when a business owner or an individual can identify what that value is and can contribute in that manner, then the money comes as a result. Sure. What, um, who are the most impressive leaders that you came across? Is there any that sort of stuck out as being really exceptional from the pack? Two, two in particular that come to mind one gentleman named Robert Kwan out of the Manila, Philippines. Mm-hmm. I was most impressed uh, by him because he had started a, a fast food chain in Asia. It, he intended it to be the McDonald's of Asia, right. and it was called Chow King. And he, within about 10 to 15 years, had set up 155 of these restaurants. Wow. Okay. And after this time, he said he hit a crossroad, and he had to decide whether it was going to be about him or it was going to be about contribution. And at that time, he sold his 155 restaurants, and he took a large chunk of sum of money uh, of his own personal profit, and he built the country's largest hospital in the Philippines. And his intention, his purpose, was to be able to create a first-class medical facility at third-world country prices. Right. And... That was significant, and you could just uh, you could feel that that desire for contribution in that regard. His was definitely one of the most meaningful interviews of all. What was um, what was his motivation behind it? Did he have parents that were ill, or a child that was ill, or something? Was there a, a real personal reason why he built, put money into a hospital rather than something else? You know, I think he, I think he, you know, he definitely saw the the need for a lot of these little kids coming into medical facilities not getting the, the proper attention that they, they de- deserved. And that, that touched a special chord in his heart. And, I, you know, every year he goes and uh, dresses up uh, and, and goes and hands out gifts of Santa Claus in, in different parts of, of, the, uh, of the world and in the Philippines. And he just has a tender heart towards kids. And I think that he knew that that would suit a very meaningful purpose there and a great need. No, that's 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 great. I, I've got a, a friend. Um, I work with a a fellow who is one of the best cricketers in the world. Not that most people where I live. Um, I live in California, and I've lived there for twenty five years. But cricket's not exactly a, a 
first sport that comes to mind. Um, and he is now a, poli- a big politician in Pakistan, and uh, he built a big hospital there, but it was because his mother died of cancer, so he had that sort of tie to to um, to build the hospital. So what were the greatest discoveries that you um, um, uncovered during during this almost two-month tour? You know, besides that great desire for contribution, I also realized that wherever you go in the world, everybody's basic needs, people want the same kind of things. People yeah. want to have a, a, a deeper abiding faith. They want to have a stronger connection with other people, with their families and significant other people in their lives. They want to have good health. They want to be able to manage their time and resources wisely. And they want to be able to discover a, a personal sense of contribution to feel ultimately fulfilled. And it, to me, it was amazing. I, I had an interview in Seoul, South Korea, with an anchor woman named Kim Judah. Mm-hmm. And just a fantastic woman. But we got into that interview. It was the day after Osama bin Laden had been had been killed. And so things around the media room were, were quite crazy. <laughs> and we were supposed to have a 45-minute interview. She immediately told me it would only be 15 because of the, uh, the necessity for sure. her to go on uh, live TV. And... At the end of the 14 minutes, I wanted to respect her time, and we got down to the end. I had asked her about her career. She had an impressive uh, resume and unbelievable accomplishments. And my last question to her was, of all the things you've done in your career, both personally and professionally, what is the most significant accomplishment? And I'll never forget her reaction because it brought tears to everybody in that room. She looked down, and she started crying. And as she started crying, she looked back up, and she said, I've had a lot of great career accomplishments, but nothing will replace the value I feel as a mother. Yeah. yeah. And it was such a somber moment, and I think people just felt the sincerity of what she said. But in that moment, I realized, you know what? Every, everybody wants the same kind of things. We're all, we're out, we're all after results in our Absolutely. personal and professional life. And I think that was very significant. So how have you applied what you've learned um, into your leadership development model? To me, it becomes based around that contribution, and it's helping people to identify within themselves what it is that they want to contribute, both in a personal and professional way. Mm-hmm. It becomes a matter of helping people to believe that those results or those uh, aspirations are possible, and then helping others, organizations, and individuals put a plan of action in place, and then ultimately, and I think most importantly, be able to execute that plan. I find that a lot of people, they have lofty, great dreams, fantastic dreams, but the difference between the dream and having it become a reality has a lot to do with that execution. Absolutely. It has so, everything to do with that execution. <laughs> it, it does. And, and I find that as I go around and help companies and individuals put that in place and execute the plan, I draw an immense amount of gratification being able to see people who take that dream and make it into a reality and are able to experience that sense of contribution that ultimately is the most significant thing that brings that fulfillment and that feeling of success. Okay, Kenny, last question. Um, Was there something that stood out that these uh, leaders noted as being a major deficit in the world, something that we really needed to fix and fix quickly? Yes, the the overriding in, in almost every continent that I went to, I ultimately, I had asked them that question at the very end and asked them, what is, if there's one thing that our world lacks in the business world, what is it? Unanimously, 
that ultimate deficit was the ability to communicate. And that communication, not only, not only, uh, linguistically, but also be able to, to, um, to be able to communicate culturally with other people. Empathetic. And so, yeah, I mean, in, in, in France, for example, when McDonald's turned in France, it didn't go well until they introduced the salad and the water, because that was a big cultural difference hmm. and something that was significant in France. And so the ability to communicate was something that they felt like was a big deficit and something that there was a great opportunity to improve in this world with business. Okay, Kenny, it was great to speak to you today. I really appreciate your time. Now, if you'd like to find out more about Kenny, go to his website, which is www.kennyjanderson.com. That's www.kennyjanderson.com. And I'll be back for the last segment of the Bob Pritchard Show just after this short break. Remember, the Bob Pritchard Radio Show is here to help small businesses like yours to succeed. If you're a regular listener to the show and you're benefiting from this information and uh, from the information from my guests, tell your friends to listen. Go to my website at bobpritchard.com and subscribe to my monthly newsletter. Send in your questions. Email me at bob at bobpritchard.com. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook and Google+. I hope you enjoyed today's show, and I look forward to being with you again next week from the wonderful city of Los Angeles. Until next time, have a fantastic and successful week, and let's kick some butt and have fun. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.